0: Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Justin Logan, Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and John Hoffman, who's a Policy Analyst at Cato. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you, John. We're going to be talking about a a recent piece you guys wrote in the National Interest in response to the Hamas attacks in Israel and Israel's subsequent attacks in Gaza. But I want to start by asking you guys about some of the commentary that's been published. Since the crisis began, there were some predictable, if disappointing arguments that essentially tried to pin some of the blame for all of this on U.S. non-intervention or inactivity or lack of commitment to the Middle East or something. You guys cited Suzanne Maloney of the Brookings Institution saying, you know, this makes it clear that extricating ourselves from this region is a dangerous illusion. Fareed Zakaria said this outbreak of violence is what a post-American Middle East looks like. What on earth
1: are they talking about? I think really what we saw in the first couple of days following the the attacks is this blame being placed on Washington that it's a it's a lack of American involvement, it's our desire to pivot elsewhere, it's you know a a lack of US interest in the Middle East, whatever however you want to frame this. I think you know immediately the finger was pointed at Oh, this is a result of not doing too much. This poach holes and all the arguments of those who say we need to get out of the region, we need to curtail our presence in the region, and we really wanted to push back against that because this attack, as we know, and and as we argue in in the piece, is took place under you know American grand designs for the Middle East, not because of it, you know, n- not to lack of involvement.
2: Yeah. And I would just say, you know, some people have said, um, looking at our argument that 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 we say this happened because of U.S. involvement in the Middle East. And that's not exactly our argument. We're responding to people who say this attack happened because we were trying to get out of the Middle East or that it is an indication of what a post U.S. dominated Middle East would look like. And so we're responding to that argument. It's quite clear that, you know, Hamas had its own prerogatives, its own incentives uh, for launching this terrorist attack. Um, so it's it's not that we're saying you know this is a function of U.S. policy in the Middle East. We're just saying it's quite silly to say that the reason this attack happened was that either we were getting out of the Middle East or that this is an indication of what a post U.S. Middle East might look like. Uh, given our extremely high level of involvement there at the present. Yeah, there's this
0: incredible tendency to just overestimate uh, U.S. influence. Uh, Everything is because the U.S. did or did not do something. Um, You guys write in this piece, the United States finds itself on the brink of serious escalation and long-term entrapment in the Middle East. Talk about the pressures and incentives the U.S. faces now to become more deeply involved in the region.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, from a U.S. policy point of view, um, the number one thing we need to be doing is preventing ourselves from being sucked into a major regional conflagration. Um, And I think the problem is that we have a very limited ability um, to do that. Right. So the Biden administration has sent two carrier strike groups to the eastern Mediterranean. And has given speeches now saying to those who would think about jumping into the fray against Israel, my message is don't, um, which is a fine message. Uh, They shouldn't. Um, But he's trying to do two things at the same time. He's trying to deter actors that are hostile to Israel from jumping into the fight. And it appears at some level that he is trying to restrain the Netanyahu government in Israel from going so big in Gaza that it makes it more likely that those actors are, to, are going to jump into the fray. And my fear is that he has a limited ability to deter either of those parties, um, whatever their desires may be. So I think it may be the case that we may get out of this thing without a major regional conflagration, without getting sucked into a major regional conflagration, But that may not be a result of Biden's various remonstrations uh, to either or both parties. It may just be that the Israelis have a powerful incentive not to find themselves in a two-front war and the Hezbollahis, you know, don't want to, to, to jump in. Uh, They want to be held in reserve as a deterrent uh, vis-a-vis a potential strike against Iran, for example, Um, So it may be that we get through this thing and tell ourselves, aha, we were able to deter that thing that we didn't want to have happen. But it may not, in fact, have been a function of, you know, Biden's various declarations. But I think from the point of view of policy, what we really need to be aiming at is, you know, again, not getting sucked into a major regional war in the Middle East at a time that we have. You know, a $33 trillion national debt, trillion, trillion and a half dollar a year budget deficits um, and no real policy solutions to these problems on or even over the horizon that I can see. These attacks happened um, against the
0: backdrop of the Abraham Accords uh, that, that Trump secured and Biden's clear stated objective of making such a deal with Saudi Arabia. Um John, you've written a lot about uh, the Abraham Accords from the beginning. Tell me if I'm wrong. I understood them to be a kind of political formalization of the gradual development of working ties between the Arab states and Israel. It was essentially putting a kind of formal name on a political reality that had already emerged between Israel and these states. But the initiation of the Abraham Accords marked a change in the sense that historically these Arab states refused normalization with Israel unless there was first a just settlement to the Palestinian issue. And the Accords happened because the Arab states essentially dropped this prerequisite. Is that an accurate understanding? Give us some of the context for the Abraham Accords, uh, what they have or haven't accomplished, and, and talk about the normalization deal uh, Biden is pursuing with Saudi Arabia.
1: No, absolutely. I, th- I think you described it really well. The The Abraham Accords were a formalization of implicit and, you know, back. Door negotiations and 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 cooperation that have been going on for quite some time, uh, it, you know, the Abraham Accords made it made it formal and and kind of slapped a, a new term on it. But but these ties have been going on for a long time due to the convergence of strategic interests between Israel and these Arab states. Now, the Abraham Accords themselves, like you mentioned, you know, th- these were you know more of a political mechanism. Uh, by political elites to advance their own shared interests. And what we've seen is, even in the wake of this war, Biden's unrelenting commitment and push for Saudi-Israel normalization. We've seen this stated by the admi- numerous members of the administration. We've seen this stated by the Israelis and stated by the Saudis. And then, of course, in the couple weeks since the war, the Washington commentary has really... L- produced a tremendous amount of uh, of articles arguing, saying this is the only way forward for the Middle East. So this framework uh, of the Abraham Accords still very much dominates in Washington and seems to still lead Biden's foreign policy in the region.
2: Yeah, I would just add to that, you know, John has done great work. We were, uh, uh, you know, very pleased to bring him on board, uh, I guess, at the beginning of this year. Um, because he you know, came out at the end of last year with a paper for Cato about called Shaky Foundation, which essentially argued that pushing all of our chips in on uh, particularly Arab dictatorships in and around the Gulf was a bad bet for u s. foreign policy. And then to you know peek behind the curtain a little bit, John and I were arguing a little bit about what his next project should be. And I said, why don't you do something about this idea about, you know, uh, Saudi normalization in the United States? And and he had a different uh, idea about, uh, you know, he came out of the academy, right? So he wanted to do this work on multipolarity in the Middle East. I said, I like that idea. I like the academy. But why don't you do this this, this Saudi uh, project? He said, OK, you know, I'm happy to do it. And then he, uh, you know, by a twist of fate, was first out of the gate condemning this project from the U.S. policy point of view. And I think, you know, the paper that he wrote is excellent because it essentially says, right, you know, if Saudi Arabia and Israel are worried about Iran, that's reasonable for them to do. Right. Uh, You know, Iran uh, as a conventional military power from a U.S. point of view isn't terribly scary. But if, you know, the Saudis and Israelis want to align regionally against Iran and sort of hedge against uh, Iranian Uh, revanchism or something, for example, that's perfectly fine for them to do, and it may even be in their interest to do so. But the idea that the United States needs to pay off all of the principles in this deal to do something that is ostensibly in their interest to do, and, and the payments here involve providing nuclear technology to the dictatorship in Riyadh, providing security guarantees to that same dictatorship... Which at this point or at that point, as it were, we're still murky in the sense that is it in fact uh, providing a security guarantee of the Saudi state um, against, you know, a conventional military incursion in an Iranian invasion, which would be one thing and bad enough from a point of view. But as John has pointed out, um, you know, every time that there's been any instability inside Saudi Arabia, you find a couple of Shia Muslims that are involved in this and the Saudis say it's Iran. So, will we be in the business of protecting the Saudi dictatorship from any unrest that it may face internally because there are a few Saudi Shias involved in said unrest? And this just seemed like an absolutely terrible bet from the US point of view. And just to you know, put a put a put a stamp on this, we always talk about US policy in the Middle East as being juxtaposed between our interests. And our values. And the question is, will we side with our interests or will we side with our values? And this is a case where our interests and our values are in fact one, not to sound like George W. Bush on this thing. Um, But we have, uh, our values are very much not aligned with Mohammed bin Salman's dictatorial vision for Saudi Arabia. And our interests are very much not aligned with being the protector of said dictatorship. So for us, this was the, you know, the example where the kind of you know realists among us get to say, hey, wait a minute, guys, the throwing in with Brett McGurk and MBS on this thing is really gross from a values point of view and not in our interests. Um, and yet it's been full steam ahead in Washington on this thing before the attack. A lot of these people hunkered down for a week after the 10-7 attack. Uh, And now, you know, John periodically comes into my office every other day saying, hey, boss, they're back at it again. Um, And they are back at it again. And I think, you know, John has persuaded me that it's a matter of time um, before they come to the ramparts uh, with a sort of three part uh, argument that John will lay out, if you ask him to, uh, about why this is vital for the future of the region, Um, again, to give Saudi Arabia nuclear technology and security guarantees.
0: Yeah, part of the trouble here seems
2: to be that it's in the political benefit, the
0: individual political benefit of, say, Trump or Biden to pursue these kinds of deals, these formalization deals. But it's not in our strategic benefit. It's not in our national interest. And that's a a big problem. Justin, you started talking a bit about um, this reverse leverage that you guys mentioned in the piece, this ability and tendency for our allies and clients to kind of manipulate us into continuing uh, a relationship that is in their benefit and not in ours. Uh just talk about that a little bit more how it manifests.
2: Yeah, I mean this is a uh there there's a different metaphor. Reverse leverage is a very wonky uh scholarly metaphor. I have a childhood uh fairy tale metaphor that I use here. But um the basic argument and John dug up a really great quote from the Wall Street Journal um about MBS that if I can dig it up here um you know, MBS essentially said that his plan for the normalization deal was to use the threat of a closer relationship between Saudi Arabia and in particular China to extract more goodies from the United States. So The Wall Street Journal reported it in March, quote, in private, Saudi officials said, the Crown Prince has said he expects that by playing major powers against each other, Saudi Arabia can eventually pressure Washington to concede to its demands for better access to U.S. weapons and nuclear technology, right? So that's the idea of reverse leverage. We tell ourselves that we will get leverage against our clients by dint of our relationships with them. But in fact, their leverage is reversed where the client says, we might find a new patron, so you better watch out. Um, So that's the reverse leverage argument. But this China argument to me, which... Based my understanding over the past couple of years is that this is what's carried the day inside the Biden administration in terms of the normalization deal and the overall Middle East approach led by Brett McGurk has been, if we don't do this, China will eat our lunch in the Middle East, right? To which I say, let them eat our lunch in the Middle East. The Middle East has been a giant sucking wound on American strategy For the last several decades, it has produced nothing of benefit for U.S. security policy over the past several decades. The Middle East possesses less than 5% of world GDP, less than 5% of world population. None of its states have power projection capability outside of the region. This is not a place where American military policy has much to do. So don't get in the business of trying to run this region. We don't have the solutions to its problems, and its problems, if we leave them alone, mostly will not affect us. So uh, the, the metaphor that I've used before is, you know, I, one of the bedtime stories that I was read when I was younger was of uh, Br'er Rabbit and the Briar Patch, right? So Br'er Rabbit is this sort of wily rabbit running around who's eventually caught by the fox. The fox is this very vindictive actor holding Br'er Rabbit up by the ears, and Br'er Rabbit knows he's in a heck of a pinch, right? So he says to the fox, please, fox, you could do anything you want to me, but whatever you do, don't throw me into that horrible briar patch down there. Those thorns are, look frightfully sharp, and I, I just don't want to be thrown into that briar patch. So what does the fox do? Because he's so vindictive, he throws Br'er Rabbit down into the briar patch. Well, guess what a rabbit can do in a briar patch that a fox can't? Weave through the thorns, you see. So he found himself that he was able to get out of this. And so, m- from my point of view, what we should be saying is, oh, please, China, don't plunge into the Middle East and steal our lunch there. We 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 this has been a huge source of strength and national power for us over these past several decades. If you took our 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 benefits there, it would be a real, real albatross for us and and, and a real benefit to you. You know, if someone has to inherit the the, the charge of running the Middle East. It couldn't happen to a nicer group of guys than the Chinese Communist Party. John, I want to ask you to expand on that, um, at least a
0: little angle of it, because you wrote in a separate piece in response to this kind of thing that it doesn't appear that Moscow or Beijing wants to fill an American void in the in the Middle East. Can you say more, more about that? I mean, imagine I'm a, a skeptical hawk, and I firmly believe, believe that China and Russia want to become entrenched in the Middle East as we have. What would you say to dissuade me?
1: No, absolutely. I think, you know, both Russia and China, aside from facing their own problems at home, you know, Russia's bogged down in the uh, war in Ukraine. China itself is facing uh, a slowing economy and, and, and other domestic pressures at home. So, Russia and China in the Middle East have been opportunists. It, it's been underneath the American security umbrella that they've been able to move in and and enhance their relationships with different sides and and uh, pick up relatively low hanging fruit. You know, that, in terms of low hanging fruit, I think a great example is you know the the reproachment of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Everybody pointed at, it, at that and said, "Oh my gosh, the Chinese are coming in, the, the Americans are getting sidelined here," but when you take a step back, you know, those talks had been going on since 2021, brokered by Iraq and Oman, you know, so this was, this is low hanging fruit. And I think the United States by pigeonholing ourselves into supporting this, this overall order in the Middle East has limited our maneuverability while increasing the maneuver, maneuverability of others, such as Russia and China. Um, but to get back to the point uh, about the Um, The Abraham Accords and and the Saudi-Israel normalization, I I completely agree with Justin. I think the China card has been driving this for a long time, but now what we're seeing is a doubling down on the Saudi-Israel normalization and not just in the framework of China, but now also it's being presented as in wake of the latest conflict, the only way to preserve a quote unquote two state solution and then the only way to deter Iran and its proxies in the region. So in a way, the Saudi-Israel normalization deal, its stock has gone up. And this is a card that MBS knows he can only play once. He can only normalize with Israel once. He's going to hold out for absolute max concessions. Biden and friends seem pretty desperate at this point, And they were already seemingly willing to give the barn away now it might be even more so that they're you know coming up on an election year you know they're going to probably be going against trump who's already bashed biden for destroying his precious abraham accords so you know from that point of view it kind of raises the the stakes here for saudi israel normalization you guys write instead of escalating or entrapping itself
0: the united states should recognize the failures of its past policies Acknowledge the limitations of what U.S. involvement can bring to the region and reduce its Middle East policy to a level commensurate with U.S. interests. So, Justin, this is a big fatty for you. What are U.S. interests in the Middle East and what, in your opinion, does that mean for what our force posture should be there?
2: Yeah. So I've been at this for, gosh, the better part of a decade now. In 2014, I wrote a piece for Politico magazine that said, uh, from a military point of view, the Middle East doesn't matter to the United States, and then um, after I opened and then closed a restaurant and got back into the foreign policy business in 2020, I wrote a longer scholarly article for defense priorities, um, expanding the argument and putting more meat on those bones. Um, But essentially, right, looking at the region from a military point of view, my my view, I'm I'm a sort of 20th century Neanderthal when it comes to militaries and what military power can do. Um, it can defeat other militaries. Um, it can deter other militaries. Um, and and and, and that's kind of the extent of it. Um, it, it doesn't provide you with fungible political leverage across issue areas um to allow you to get what you want on a, a whole panoply of other issues. So I look at kind of the the the, the issues that the military could conceivably be set out to solve. And, you know, the reasons I have. I have these three reasons, which mostly overlap with John's three reasons why the U.S. Uh, cares about the Middle East. But the shorthand version is oil, Israel and terrorism. Right. So we care that Middle East oil make its way onto world markets in some general sense. Right. If there were some sort of light switch that turned off and Middle East oil, not a light switch, but a, a switch, a spigot, if you will, that turned off and Middle East oil ceased making its way onto world markets. Um, that would have big consequences for the global economy. We historically have thought that would be bad for the global economy, um, and we didn't like that. Um, We care about Israel's well-being. We don't want Israel to be destroyed militarily. That's a longstanding U.S. policy goal. Um, And we care about terrorism, right? We have some abstract sense in the specific sense that uh, terrorism emanates in an important way from the Middle East. And so I try to be more specific about the mechanisms of oil, Israel and terrorism that relate to U.S. military policy in the region and conclude. And I think the, the oil question is, is to me, from a scholarly point of view, the most interesting one um, where there's an extraordinarily low level of cross pollination in Washington between Middle East security scholars and energy scholars, energy economists. They just don't talk to each other. And when you tell energy economists what Middle East security scholars believe about oil markets, they don't believe you. They don't believe that security people think energy markets work in the way that you tell them they think they work. Um, And so that was kind of an interesting thing for me to unpack. But the basic story about um, oil is that oil will make its way onto world markets without a forward-leaning US presence in the Middle East. When it comes to Israel, right, Israel's existence is not threatened um, by any combination of regional militaries. Um, it's not 1967. It's not 1973. It's not anywhere close. Um, as I point out in the paper, Israel faces an important problem stemming from terrorism. But the U.S. military presence in the region doesn't do much to help with that, um, as, as, as we've seen recently and as this article suggests. Um, so there are all sorts of, schemes that people could draw up for helping Israel with its terrorism problem. But the stationing of troops in Syria and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and elsewhere um, doesn't lend itself to helping Israel with its terrorism problem. And there's no conventional military threat um, to Israel. And then the terrorism problem is interesting because U.S. strategy in broad strokes predates 9-11 by decades. Um, So to say that the policy is justified by a problem um, that happened decades after the policy emerged. is sort of has a, has a weird uh, 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 sequencing issue. Um, but the basic story there is one that is now familiar to, you know, listeners of this podcast, I assume, and anybody who's, who's, you know, has a passing familiarity with Cato's work on terrorism, John Mueller, Ben Friedman, et cetera, which is that the terrorist threat to the United States has historically been dramatically overblown. Um, geography matters a lot. Um, you know, there, there, there's just not that big of a threat to the United States. And even if you believe that we're wrong about the scale of the threat to the United States, the military things that the United States has done in the Middle East over the past several decades have tended to make that problem worse, not better. Um, so the basic story that I wind up with is that if you agree that oil, Israel and terrorism are the basic justifications for U.S. military policy in the Middle East, And if you look at my granular analysis of those three categories of justifications, then you don't wind up with a lot um, for the U.S. military to do in the Middle East. Now, you can tell a story that you want the U.S. Navy positioned to interrupt China's sea lines of communication uh, coming from the Middle East, that if there's some China conflict, you want to be able to interdict Chinese supplies of energy but no one really says that out loud. So I didn't really feel like a need to engage with that argument. But that's militarily. That's the, a much more plausible argument than any of the, the, the ostensible justifications for U.S. military policy in the Middle East. So long winded answer to your question. Um, but in terms of stationing U.S. ground troops on Middle East territory, I see basically no justification for doing it at all. Justin, in a blog post, you queried whether we have a clear picture of how Israel's bombing campaign ties into
0: its stated objective of making another such attack less likely. Uh, And you're not alone. Even the Biden administration has reportedly been questioning the wisdom of a ground invasion, for example, which could be escalatory and lacks achievable objectives. Uh, But that hasn't blunted Biden's support for Israel. Can you comment on the apparent lack of strategy here, despite a lot of support from the Biden administration.
2: Yeah, I I can comment on it. Um, it is, look, I mean, on one level, it's probably unrealistic to say, you know, I should have in front of me a concept of operations that satisfies me as an analyst, right? I mean, we have to be comfortable with some level of uh, ambiguity and, and, you know, not putting cards on the table. But I do worry that... Um, again connecting the campaign that we see unfolding to the ends politically that were laid out um, has has been quite difficult I, I think it's quite difficult also to square up with the fact that you know in the days after September 11th it was going to be really 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 difficult to hijack an airplane in the United States um, for the simple reason that Every red-blooded American man and an awful lot of red-blooded American women were pretty jacked up and ready to do terrible things to anybody who looked like they might kind of sort of want to hijack an airplane in the United States. Um, if Israel wants to prevent a replay of October the 7th, I think a replay of October the 7th is the furthest thing from being conceivable in Israel for the foreseeable future. So in the medium term, in the long term, the Israelis say, we want to make sure that it can't happen again in the far away future, which, again, from my point of view, is a great thing to do. If you could ensure that this will never happen again, that's a terrific thing, right? 10 sevens should never happen anywhere. The question becomes connecting the campaign to that objective. Um, And you've seen, you know, Lawrence Friedman and the FT, there was a big workup. Um, in the New York Times, there was John Sowers yesterday in the or yesterday whatever it was uh, Wednesday in the Financial Times, um, former head of MI6 saying that the Israeli objective of eliminating Hamas um, that the Israeli military leadership knows that this is beyond their reach. I'm not sure about that, right? So I've had some discussions with Israeli officials. Um and I will say that I have not been um terribly reassured about the level of um uh analysis that 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 I've been read in on at least, right Maybe there's maybe there's a very detailed and sophisticated analysis that I haven't been read in on, but it really does seem like there are two refrains um which is that, we have no choice. We can't live next to this anymore. Um, and we're really strong. And so, again, I, I, I don't think the Israelis should want to live next to that uh, either. And, you know, Israel is quite strong. But the United States was quite strong. And it's still quite strong. But sometimes being strong leads you to believe that you can do things that are, in fact, beyond the reach of any state. And so I the worries that I laid out in that post, whatever it was, a week or 10 days ago, have not been assuaged and, if anything, I think have deepened um, over the the, the 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 intervening period. So I, I have real serious concerns about uh, the connection of ends, ways, and means here. A lot of people have made similar points about, you know,
0: just as Americans learned after 9-11 the grief and fury following a murderous attack on civilians can make leaders pursue really bad policies. But wasn't one of the big mistakes Americans made after 9-11 not being curious enough about the motivations for the attack? Bush told us they hate us for our freedoms, not because of our horrible foreign policy that breeds deep grievances. Isn't there an analogous risk here,
2: just looking away at the root cause? Yeah. I I mean, I think the, the the analogy to nine eleven is th- there are different grades of people, right? The people who are willing to fly airplanes into the World Trade Center, you got to either kill them or capture them, or you know, like th- that 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 category. So the 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 pregnant lady disembowelers, those people <laughs> that that's we've gone into a different realm of politics there, and that's. For your badasses to deal with, right? That's that's uh, 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 murder and mayhem territory. There, the the question you raise about political context, I think, is important. And you know, look, it, it, and we sort of touch on this in a glancing way in the national interest piece, is that this broader initiative um, of of Netanyahu of Saudi normalization, et cetera, et cetera, was to bracket away the Palestinian question, right? was to say, we're going to deal with all of the other regional stuff in the Middle East, and we're just going to bracket away the Palestinian question. And I think there's been a tremendous amount of reporting out of Israel that um, just it's just Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. This was the way the Israeli government thought about Saudi normalization and the broader Palestinian question. We're, we're just going to bracket it away from the discussion. We're not going to do much... To fix it, they may have thought, you know, just it can't be fixed. Which it maybe it can't be fixed. That's a totally plausible uh, theory. Um, But we're just going to bracket it away, and we're going to deal with the Saudis. We're going to deal with the Emiratis. We're going to deal with the region, and that's the right way to go. That theory doesn't look great um, in the wake of what we have seen, And, and and you don't need to listen to me for evidence of that. The Israelis appear to be about to embark on an immensely um, costly and risky measure to, in their own way, deal with the Palestinian question. Now, will it work? Again, I've lodged my concerns on that question heretofore. So the Israelis seem to believe that they were wrong to think that sidestepping, bracketing away the Palestinian question. I think a lot of people think that, you know, one antecedent problem there is that there may have been a mixture of missing palestinian policies you might have been missing um some killing and some counterterrorism and you might have been missing some diplomacy right um the israeli press has been making a lot of hay about you know how netanyahu has had a long standing interest in keeping the west bank and gaza divided politically um And, and that, you know, he, he gave this speech that was leaked about, you know, anybody who wants to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state, uh, should be interested in Hamas holding political power in Gaza. Now that's, you know, again, doesn't look really great in retrospect, but you know, that, that's a view if, if, if you really want to emphasize the preventing the emergence of a coherent Palestinian polity and ultimately a Palestinian state, you know, that, that is one view that you could take, um, but, but again, I think, you know, it, it's not just the case that, well, you know, the the woolly headed lefties wanted to make peace with Hamas and Netanyahu wanted to bomb Iraq. You know, like, I think you can overdraw the distinctions and say that there's a binary here. Right. The the the, you know, um, 972 readers wanted to do this and, you know, Bibi and his coalition du jour wanted to do that. It may be that there was there was a more complex policy that could have been pursued that didn't try to sidestep the issue that pursued a talking and fighting um, approach at the same time. So, you know, that's my view of this is that, you know, the political context um, clearly mattered more than uh, Netanyahu thought. It clearly mattered more than Jake Sullivan thought, as we have all been reading his foreign affairs essay, which has undergone some not terribly subtle editorial post hoc uh, remediation at foreign affairs. Um, but yeah, I you know, and it's easy. Look, cards on the table. It's easy for us to sit here in our think tank offices and, you know, throw rocks at the principals that are making decisions on this stuff. Um you know, the, the virtue of having think tanks and think tank offices is that we get to picket what policymakers are doing. And I think that in retrospect, yeah, the policy of of telling yourself that a focus on regional politics, Saudi normalization, Abraham Accords, and assuming away the Palestinian issue just doesn't look great in retrospect. I just don't think that's a debatable proposition. You could be a super hawk and say, you know, we should have been going great guns on the Palestinian question. Or you could be a super dove and say, this is the wages of Netanyahu. You know, I mean, it's like Israeli politics is very technicolor. Um, so long-winded answer to your question.
1: Yeah, kind of, kind of to, to go off of that, I think one point that Justin made that that's really important is was Netanyahu's desire for quite a while to keep Gaza and the West Bank separated and, and divided. And I think what this overall event shows, looping back to the Abraham Accords, is is the hollowness of the accords. You know, the, these were designed, like Justin said, to sidestep the Palestinian question altogether. They were designed to sideline uh, public Arab opinion, which is still overwhelmingly pro Palestinian. And I think this not only deals a major blow to the accords, which has kind of emerged as just the dominant Middle East framework for U.S. foreign policy in the region. But I think, you know, this doesn't, the accords clearly do not get us towards some sort of just stable solution to to the Israel-Palestine question. Uh, but you saw Netanyahu at the U.N. hold up the map of the quote-unquote new Middle East that, you know, didn't even have Palestine on there. It was just, you know, all Palestinian territories were were, were israel and I think what we're seeing now in the current campaign, like Justin said, where you know the Israelis appear ready at a moment's notice here to go in this costly ground campaign, they have the stated objective of destroying Hamas and preventing another ten seven. Great, a just objective, you know, something that should be done. But I'm not seeing what they're currently doing in Gaza as advancing those objectives. The bombings have primarily killed civilians, uh, while having a real trivial impact on Hamas or uh, you know other groups' uh, capabilities. So how are you going to do this? How are you going to degrade Hamas? You know, a ground invasion uh, looks very similar. You know, the dynamics that could play out look very similar to what the United States did after 9/11, rushing into a military campaign that results in getting very bogged down and a massive loss of innocent life in the process. Uh, Israel getting bogged down in Gaza would also, you know, theoretically present Hezbollah or other groups with the opportunity to open new fronts. And then Israel can, you know, quickly find itself overextended and this could find itself escalating. And then that's when U.S. involvement becomes a serious uh, concern.
0: So my last question returns to a kind of theme of the show, which is policy inertia. Um, We've kind of covered it, but the thrust of your national interest piece is that we're too overinvolved in this region, we need to reconsider it. Think about our past failures and change. And Cato's been singing that tune for a long time. But even like in recent years, I have noticed members of the kind of standard establishment foreign policy community suggesting, yeah, this this region isn't as important as we have often thought, and we've expended a lot of resources there. And so the problem is. Everything stays the same. And then when there's a crisis, the only thing we hear in response is more justifications for deeper involvement. How do we get to a situation where somebody will find an opportunity to say, hey, let's back out?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think now is a tough time to be. Ma- I mean, you know, John and I were just talking about this this morning. I, I think that, um, and I, you know, mentioned in that, in that post that I wrote, You know, I woke up at five in the morning for whatever reason on uh, the seventh and started looking at uh, the images from, uh, uh, you know, southwest Israel. And I think that like the imagery is so arresting that it's really hard to um, I mean, it's just horrific, right? Can we just call a spade a spade? Right, like the, the I I had never seen a guy get his head hacked off with what looked like a garden hoe to me before, and I I didn't really want to see it once. Um, I, I did, you know, it's it's not it's just not really my um uh genre of of media consumption that I ever wanted to see, and so I think that the the horror, the unique like um vivid uh, arresting imagery here um has. You know, really affected people in an understandable way, um, me included, and so I think that you know, making arguments about limits and 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 you know these things now is is difficult. But I think that you know, again, I offered that concern about all the dumb stuff that the Americans had done after nine eleven um, out of a like I don't want to say the, the word that I'm coming up with here, but like out of a collegial, friendly, like, I I really lament that my country did all of that and that my own countrymen comrades died in that, you know, series of bad decisions, let alone, you know, the people on the other end of it who died, most of whom, you know, there was that famous video of uh, showing people in Afghanistan, like a few years ago, videos on a smartphone of September 11th. And they had no idea. They didn't even know that September 11th was a thing. They didn't. They, it was it was not a something that, you know, so there's a real like perverse reality here where there's just a whole bunch of people get sucked up into the maelstrom who are about as removed from things as you could conceivably be. So, you know, I offered those things as, you know, um, you know, learn from our mistakes if you can. Um but it's we're in a moment where the, 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 the frontal lobe is not what appears to be driving the train almost anywhere right now. We're in a different part of the human anatomy. Um, and that's very concerning, I think, again, from the point of view. And I make this point in the piece, right? It, it, you, know, you tend to frame these things as the hippie humanitarians on the left who are concerned about Gazan civilians and the tough guy realists on the right who are trying to get the war right. Let's, for the sake of argument here, bracket away entirely humanitarian concerns. Let's just be playing, you know, dorm room risk battle analysis, and let's say that the Israeli objective of eliminating the Hamas leadership, preventing another 10-7, um, at an acceptable cost, right? You don't want to, you know, uh, uh, fend off a future scenario uh, by getting more people killed than would have died in the future scenario. Um, Let's say that that's the objective and there's no real humanitarian or or sort of constraint on the other side of it. Um, Run that scenario. And so that to me is, you know, I'm willing to do that. I don't think that you have to be entirely focused on um, humanitarian considerations or anything. But if it can't pass muster without even looking at those constraints, then you really want to consider a plan that can pass muster um, and and what the objectives are and how you're going to get there. So I think it's very important not to frame this as, you know, uh, people who are concerned about Gaza humanitarians and, you know, uh, generals uh, as as the sort of binary uh, arguing battle lines here. Um, It's very important to say, you know, if we're single-mindedly thinking about what would help Israeli security... Let's evaluate the plan on those terms and see if it even makes sense on those terms. And that's the real concern that I had is that, you know, even on those terms, it's far from clear to me that uh, everything that I've seen, and again, the reporting on this has been almost monolithic, that people outside the Israeli security establishment who've advised the Israeli security establishment, um, again, Lawrence Friedman, who I think has been knighted uh, in the UK for his military analysis, um says, you know, this is really, really hard under perfect circumstances, and these aren't perfect, perfect circumstances. Um, so th- and look, play this back to me in three years, and I would love nothing more than to be proved glaringly, embarrassingly wrong. Um, it would be, make me extremely happy. Um, but I, I'm worried that 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 may not be doable. John, on the long term, any any opportunity to skedaddle
1: uh, on this posture? I think Justin's right in saying that right now, I think you know emotion and things like that are are driving the boat, just like it it was after nine eleven. But what we're what we were trying to highlight in the article is that this really needs to be a wake up call for the United States that you know our our deep engagement in the region runs, you know, anytime there is a regional conflict or conflagration or whatever, you know, anytime something happens our by our very presence being there, we risk being dragged into this. And I mean, look at the the basings in Syria and Iraq. You know, I think there's been 13 attacks so far since uh, 10-7, you know, and, you know, from my point of view, it's a great disservice to our service members because we're essentially just dangling them out there. You know, for a broader escalation with Iran. But I think this needs to be an overall reassessment of U.S. foreign policy and how our support for a very unstable and illiberal order in the Middle East has has repeatedly backfired, has repeatedly dragged us into things that are not in the uh, not in America's interest to get dragged into. And it. Diverts resources away from other strategic theaters or problems here at home.
0: John Hoffman, Justin Logan, thank you so much.